G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RBC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. I'm really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RBC podcast. And we don't ask for much in return, but we'd be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcast, Acast, and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great. Um, any other reviews, leave to other other inferior uh, uh, podcasts. But we really appreciate a bit of your time um, to uh, to write, leave us a review. So today, joining Brian and myself in the studio, we have uh, Dr. Rebecca Geddes, uh, one of our lecturers here in uh, internal medicine at the RVC um, and uh, we're sort of about talking about calcium and phosphate in relation to um, kidney disease in cats so thank you very much Beck, for, for joining us. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So um, uh, I know you're, you're quite uh, uh, interested in calcium and, and, uh, and, and phosphorus so, um, so and, and that was part of your uh, uh, part of your PhD. Can I just ask you what, what your PhD was actually on well pretty much calcium and phosphorus so um yeah i was essentially looking into calcium and phosphate sort of homeostatic disruption once you've got chronic kidney disease going on so um secondary renal hyperparathyroidism and all of that jazz okay and so what what i wanted to ask you so why should we be interested in in calcium and and, uh, and phosphorus in our cats in general we'll talk about cats because it's probably a bit simpler with renal disease yeah i mean yeah let's stick with cats we can talk about dogs another day um but yes well mainly because although phosphate gets into the body through eating but the only way that you can get rid of it is by filtering out with the kidney and then peeing it out so once your kidneys aren't working very well essentially you don't filter as much phosphate and it starts to build up in the bloodstream and when your phosphate starts to build up, that then impacts on calcium and on a whole load of other hormones like PTH and vitamin D. And you end up with sort of chronic changes in those hormones that ultimately will pull calcium out of bones and weaken bones or cause changes to the vasculature, will cause um, calcification in the kidneys. And all of these things will ultimately make your kidney function worse so this is all contributing to progression of chronic kidney disease. So we worry about it because it's something that we can actually intervene and help to control to try and slow progression of the condition. And so when, when should we look at this with, with cats with, uh, with renal disease? I think really should be thinking about measuring it um, as soon as you've diagnosed a cat with CKD. So most of the time that's going to be when you've documented azotemia then your biochemistry panel is going to include measurement of phosphate anyway um, and will include total calcium. Now, it's nice if you can have ionised calcium because that's obviously the biologically active um, part of circulating calcium. But um, certainly having a glance at those, you've already got that information um, the most part, so you can consider then whether you think the phosphate concentrations are a problem or not in that patient. And so when you look at your biochemistry and you look at your total calcium and, and phosphate, what, what, what are you looking at in regards to that? Just their elevations or how elevated they are? Yeah, it- so this is the tricky bit, Don, because um, unfortunately your laboratory reference range, and really I'm talking about phosphate here, the laboratory reference range for phosphate is quite wide. It will vary from lab to lab, but it will go up to something like 2.2 millimoles per litre. And 
we actually know that even if phosphate is within the reference range, if it's in the higher part of the reference range, that patient could well still have disruption to all of these other hormones and secondary renal hyperparathyroidism, or we now call it mineral and bone disease, but that will probably already be going on. So although this is not very helpful because it requires you to actually look up some other numbers, there are published guidelines that are available on the IRIS website, the International Renal Interest Society website, that tell you what you want to get your phosphate levels down to for different stages of chronic kidney disease. So, for example, even in the cats that are mildly azotemic and therefore are in iris stage 2, you're aiming to keep phosphate levels, if you can, less than 1.45 millimoles per litre, which is really slap bang in the middle of the reference range. So you're really aiming for that bottom half of the reference range. So that's just something that actually I think a lot of people still aren't aware of. And it's not something that jumps straight out at you when you go on the IRIS website. It's something that you have to sort of read through their guidelines to find that information. But yes, ideally, we need to be trying in all of our chronic kidney disease patients to keep their phosphate concentration in that lower half. And so with that recommendation, is that what they've looked at in um, those patients uh, looking at different sort of cohorts, whether they're phosphate restricted or or not and how they progress? Is that? Yeah. So, well, originally those um, sort of cut points came from a roundtable discussion and were based on recommendations from the human sort of kidney guidelines and based on kind of personal experience. They weren't very evidence-based when they were first uh, put forward. However, we now do have really quite a large evidence base throughout the veterinary literature to support those guidelines. So essentially, if cats have phosphate that's above the iris target, they tend not to live as long and their kidney disease progresses more quickly than cats who have phosphate concentrations within those targets. So yes, we do have lots of evidence now to support the use of those cool and and how can we uh phosphate restrict our feline friends so probably the best way to do it or the way that we've got the clearest evidence for is to put them on a phosphate restricted diet in order to achieve low phosphate concentrations which is quite difficult For cats, which are obligate carnivores and eat a high-protein diet, because phosphate's coming from protein, this means that we need to put them on a protein-restricted diet. So the easiest way to do that is to use a commercially available renal diet. They're all produced on sort of similar guidelines, whichever make you go for. So um, it's a case, really, of finding one that's going to be palatable to that individual cat, because... Sometimes that's the complaint that they're not that palatable, but actually there are a lot of different ones available and different flavours and different formulations in terms of, you know, wet food, pâtés, pouches, dry food, etc. So it's finding something that the cat likes. And the reason that we'd say to really try and use a renal diet as your first way of trying to control phosphate concentrations is that although we have evidence to say that 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 will make a difference and will prolong survival and slow progression of kidney disease. But we don't know that it's just the phosphate restriction that does that. It could be other elements of the renal diets that are helping. So the fact that they're supplemented with omega-3 fatty acids, the fact that they've 
got sort of potassium supplementation that they're non-acidifying all these other things that have been worked into the commercial renal diet might be helping to prolong survival time and slow progression the other option is that you could use a phosphate binder if you're going to do that it needs to be thoroughly mixed into every meal that the cat has because it needs to bind the phosphate before it's sort of absorbed from the gut into the body so um we don't have any evidence to say that just using a phosphate binder with a normal food will improve survival time for cats with chronic kidney disease so you can look at using a phosphate binder and I would definitely use them if you're already using a renal diet and the phosphate is still higher than you'd like it to be but I think the first thing to try and do is to feed a renal diet or as much renal diet as possible even if you have to feed some normal cat food mixed into it or alongside in order to increase palatability. So is, is, is that, uh, that, are there limited number of studies just looking at phosphate binding it, it, itself? There, as are, in, as there in are studies that just look at phosphate mm. binders, but not, but sort of, so we know that they will decrease phosphate, but we don't have any studies that take it out further to then look at what happens longer term to survival time. So yes, we know that they can work and they can decrease phosphate, but we don't have the evidence to say, but that will make a difference in a cohort of patients. They will live this many months longer if you do that. And you said say there's lots of different diets as well. Is it When they uh, look at diets with renal disease, do um, wet food diets do better than dry food diets or has anyone looked at that? No, no one has actually really evaluated that. And that's, I think that's something that people often assume that they mu- it must be a wet food diet that you feed because... You know, we all know that if you eat, if a cat eats a wet food diet, they will take in more water overall than a cat that's eating a dry food diet. They don't drink enough alongside a dry food diet to increase their water intake to be the same as when they're eating a wet food diet. Um, but interestingly, the studies that we do have that show the survival benefit haven't focused just on wet foods. So I don't. I think it's really a case of it being something that that individual cat is willing to eat. So if they're a dry food cat and they're never going to be willing to eat a wet food, then it is much better that they're on a you know solely dry renal diet than on something else that will hopefully still have that benefit. And so with some people that might be concerned about their, their cats either developing chronic kidney disease but might not have, um, say, evidence or blood tests to support that, but they're concerned about older, older cats. So is there any, any concerns about putting a, a cat on a, a renal diet anyway? Before you've actually diagnosed chronic kidney disease. So that is something that is currently under investigation that we're starting to get studies come out in the literature that are starting to address that question because that's been a question that we've had for a long time. You know, we know the renal diet is beneficial once you've got azotemic CKD. Is it beneficial before you've got azotemic CKD? And we can't answer that question at this point in time. Um, I think there are I would definitely have concerns about just making that assumption because we don't know if the fact that those diets are protein restricted is going to be a problem if you're then feeding them for the much longer term because cats don't yet have chronic kidney disease. And we also don't know whether having that level of phosphate restriction could be a problem. For some cats, going on a protein and phosphate restricted diet 
can exacerbate hypercalcemia or some of them seem to become hypercalcemic and we don't know whether restricting phosphate when they're not yet having a problem with phosphate buildup in the body could make that more likely. So there's quite a few questions around that at the moment. I would say I would just recommend to feed an age-appropriate diet unless you've actually got a clear diagnosis of chronic kidney disease. And you said before when the, when the um, mics were, were closed that uh, a lot of the phosphate binders are calcium-containing. So do you have issues with cats that are, are on that and problems with their with their calcium levels? I think you can do. And I think one thing that worries me is that some cats, like I say, just do become hypercalcemic. Exactly why, whether it's because of their CKD, whether it's because of the diet, you know, exactly why it happens, we don't totally understand. And it's not always something that people are looking for to check. So if you put a cat, if a cat remains hyperphosphatemic on renal diet, or it's a cat that just completely refuses to eat renal diet, and you put them on a phosphate binder, if it's one that contains calcium, because calcium is an excellent phosphate binder, so it's in a lot of them, then that's something that you should just monitor for, whether the cat becomes hypercalcemic. Ideally, by measuring ionised calcium, but if you don't have that available, then by measuring total calcium. And if you are concerned about that, then you need to switch to a non-calcium-containing phosphate binder, something like aluminium hydroxide. And we were speaking about that palatability of that is, is a bit sort of questionable, whether they... Well, I think I haven't... That's the one that I use mostly as my kind of first choice anyway. I don't think the palatability is that much of a problem. And I think actually... A lot of the time, this is one reason, another reason, why I wouldn't say, I'll just use a phosphate binder instead of trying to use a renal diet, because, yes, there can be problems with palatability of the diet, but there can also be problems with palatability of the phosphate binder. So, you know, and you only ever want to really switch a cat onto a renal diet or try and add in a phosphate binder when the cat is eating pretty well and is at home and is fairly well hydrated and seems happy. If you've got a cat that's currently unwell, because they've had a uremic crisis or they're hospitalised for some reason, that's never the time to try and introduce a new diet or something else into the food because cats can very easily um, develop food aversion. And if they do develop an aversion to that particular food, you will never get them to eat it again, even once they are feeling better and they're at home and things like that. So picking your moment to introduce these things is also quite important. So you, say if you diagnose a, a cat that has um, azotemic um, kidney disease and you want to put them on a, 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 a renal diet, whatever renal diet that is, and you're worried about their phosphate being elevated or, or high end of normal, how long would it take for you to say it would be a good time to, to recheck the biochemical values to say, I'm doing all right. Is it? Does it take a bit of time for yeah. to get a steady state where you'd be happy if they're obviously if they're eating uh, an appropriate amount regularly, and everything yeah. else is all, all right? When when would you say you should you should re recheck? Yeah, this is these are definitely chronic interventions. These are not. Some, this is another reason not to use them in the acute setting when they're acutely unwell, because in order to really I mean, we don't know exactly when steady state is obtained, but in order to really see the value that your intervention is having on 
phosphate levels you probably want to give it maybe four to six weeks um six to eight weeks something like that so don't get the patient back too quickly recheck it and say it's not working you know give it that time on you know even if the cat's only eating 50% renal diet 50% something else give it four to six weeks then recheck and then if it's you've still got a phosphate concentration above the cutoff that you want for that stage then sort of try and encourage the owner to feed more renal diet or at that point look at whether you should be adding in a phosphate binder so yes definitely don't recheck too quickly and, and i know you're a, a a cat owner a proud cat owner and do you, do you have any uh, any tricks that you would say um so some cats that don't eat renal food or turn turn a you know their head uh, away from that obviously eating is just important in general so so don't worry about what you what you feed them but do you, do you have any you know tricks or suggestions for for uh, introducing these you know, sometimes diets that might be um more challenging to introduce to your patients yeah i think slowly is the best way to do it so definitely make sure that they're eating well before you even start um so you know make sure they're kind of like their hydration is stable and they're doing fairly well at home and then we tend to always recommend doing maybe like a seven to ten day slow introduction of the food and it doesn't matter whether you do it by offering the new diet and the old diet side by side or whether you do it by mixing them in I think that's going to be a little bit you know your own cat so a little bit down to the preference of the individual cat um but just yeah trying to gradually each day have more of the new food and less of the old food and kind of do it that way um and if you're sort of struggling because the cat just really doesn't seem to like it then it might be a case of saying okay maybe this isn't the one for this cat we need a different flavor or we need a different formulation or something like that um and i mean uh, you know this is my current cats that i have having rather embarrassingly previously had a geriatric cat with chronic kidney disease who i couldn't get to eat any renal diet whatsoever but that was before my phd um i now with my current younger cats actually do feed them quite a varied diet in terms of they have wet food and dry food they have sort of different bits and bobs as treats mainly because i sort of want them to be a bit more open-minded if i later have to put them on a specific um diet that they might be more willing to take it we'll, we'll see if that uh, we'll if that see if works. that works yeah <laughs> And um, and do you do you think or, or in in the in the future what what's what's happening in particular around sort of the calcium and phosphorus that you think um, is important that you know questions that we answer and, and what is what is being looked at at the at the moment? How load of things are being looked at really? Um, definitely a big area is what we were talking about before is these early ckd cases now that we have sdma available and people are maybe picking cases up earlier than they were before um what can we actually do to intervene safely and that's going to be beneficial to the patient so i think that's a big area of research that people are looking into um we're also sort of interested in being able to better monitor these patients and know which patients are really having a problem with mineral and bone disorder um, and in order to do that that will involve having um, more available assays for some of the hormones that are disrupted so hormones like fibroblast growth factor 23 or fgf 23 which is not 
currently commercially available, but if we could measure that, we'd be able to pick up cats whose phosphate is normal, but who actually might be in the early stages of needing phosphate restriction. Um, and maybe, ultimately, we will be able to pick up other things like certain genetic changes in these cats that's going to mean that we can actually tailor their nutrition more specifically to the type of kidney disease they have or to um, their sort of likelihood for having changes in their calcium like hypercalcemia or not all of these things ultimately are, are, <laughs> you, um, are you still involved in any uh, research projects that are that are going on um, like following up from your your PhD in yeah, I mean, there's so my research group that I was part of has taken quite a few of those things forward. We're in the process of writing up some studies that sort of I started and then have been followed up a bit more. Um, and I'm also sort of now looking a bit more towards kind of calcium disruption still in cats, but in terms of sort of forming kidney stones and things like that. Um, so, yes, there's sort of quite a a lot of stuff going on here in terms of looking into these things further. And with um, cats with renal disease and their, are there similarities in people and, and uh, renal disease? Are cats actually a good model of, of uh, renal disease in people? Yeah, I think in certain aspects they definitely are. It's it's so prevalent in the cat, mm. um, you know, such a high natural prevalence of this condition. There are differences in terms of... Um, you know, a lot of people that end up needing dialysis and have CKD will be diabetic, for example, and that that's not something that we see in the feline patients. Um, but there are certainly kind of aspects of it that can be directly kind of translatable between the species. Oh. Um, so do you think we've uh, m missed anything or anything further to, to add in regarding to uh, calcium and phosphate re restriction? In do think so i think that's that's good yeah most of it. well I, I, but i think it's important that the um you know you don't want to giving them a, a renal diet if they're ADT mix is important but also i think that it's good to say get them on a steady state before we start worrying about phosphate too much yeah. and then um and then but but bear in mind what you want is is not is not within the reference range but yes bang in the middle but exactly Try and get it below 1.45 millimole per litre, your phosphate, if you possibly can. Yeah. Good advice. Um, so we'll wrap it up there. And many thanks for your time again, uh, Vec. Thank you very much. Um, and thank you for, for listening. So don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit based device. And that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. If you can leave a five star review, that would be great. And tell your friends, vet friends, any friends, it doesn't really matter. We're, we're open to anyone. So uh, we'll place any show notes on the RVC pages. So if you just type in RVC Clinical Podcast in your search engine of choice, it should be top of the tree. So if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please get in touch. You can either email dbarfield.rvc.ac dot ac dot uk or tweet at don barfield until next time bye bye